So Isaiah, sorry, start again. Isaiah 43, verse 1 to 13, Israel's only saviour. And it's page number 728, 728. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honoured in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from, from afar. And my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may say, may hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, but let's ask for the Lord's help as we begin. We pray, our Father, as we reflect on your salvation, that you would assure us that apart from you there is no Saviour. We ask this through Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the subject we're thinking about this morning is the subject of salvation. Uh, salvation is something we talk a lot about in the church. It's something that we sing about. It's something we share with the world around us. But the topic of salvation is not something that just Christians talk about. Of course, other religions offer their version of salvation, whether it be the five pillars of Islam or the sevenfold path of Buddhism or whatever uh, world religion. There is this path of salvation. And it isn't just formal religions that speak about salvation. Our secular culture 
has its version of salvation. I've been watching this documentary, uh, you may have seen it, called How to Live to a Hundred. Anyone seen it, or is it just me? Um, it's uh, this idea, yeah, I do watch a lot of telly. Um, <laughs> this, uh, this presenter goes round what he calls these blue zones, these places where there's an unusually high number of people above 100 years old. And as he goes through, he notes down all the things they eat, yes, they eat corn, they eat beans and all that sort of thing, all the things they do. And at the end of it, in the last episode, he gives you a kind of wheel of um, salvation, if you like, as if you follow this wheel, uh, follow the program, you too will live to a 100. Obviously, no sort of guarantees of that, uh, but that's the idea. Or maybe it's more your thing, X Factor, Strictly Come Dancing. You'll know that in those programs, they have this little backstory, don't they? Normally in black and white, normally talking about how difficult this person's life was how they struggled against the odds, and if only they can make it by winning Strictly or The X Factor, well, then they'll realize their dreams. They'll be truly recognized for who they are. See, salvation is all around us. Yes, Christians talk about salvation, but everyone, no matter religious or not, is seeking the better life, is seeking the happiness that we crave instinctively. And that creates a bit of a problem for us Christians. Because when we go out into the world and speak about salvation, the question's going to come back to us, what's so special about what you talk about? Uh, Why is the salvation God promises any better to the salvation that I might find through health or exercise or my career or my talents or whatever it is? See, what if you like, make salvation in Jesus worth listening to? What makes this salvation so special? Well, that is the question behind the passage uh, that we're looking at this morning. Uh, We saw last week in the book of Isaiah that this is written in the context of a rising superpower. Uh, This superpower is called Babylon, and it is looking terrifying. It is encroaching on the borders of this little uh, beat-up people. And as the fears grow in this nation, people are asking themselves, can God do anything about it? Is he really able to save us? And lots of people are looking to other gods, to looking to other ways of finding salvation, because they're so terrified that the God who promises salvation isn't just going to do it, isn't going to do it. But God speaks, chapter 43, to assure them, and I hope ensure us, uh, that he really is a saviour like no other. There's a headline in verse 11, uh, if the heat is getting to you and you want to drop off, um, come back to verse 11, that's the one thing I want you to take away this morning, where God says, even I, even I am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no saviour. That's what God wants to assure you and me of this morning. Now, why does he want us to see that? And how does he get us to see that? Well, we see that in chapter 43. We see, first of all, the extent of his mercy. Then we see the evidence of his mercy. 
And then finally, we're going to think about what that means for us. See, first of all, we see here in this first half, up to verse 7, the extent of God's mercy. I wonder how many opportunities do you give someone who doesn't speak to you? Um, I think the, the young people have got this phrase, ghost in someone, you heard of that? This idea that actually some people might just cut you off. I wonder if you were in that context and people didn't return your messages or your phone calls or blanked you on the street, how many chances do you give that person? One, two, three? Because at this point, that is where God finds himself. Over the centuries, the people have ghosted him. Uh, Have a look back at um, chapter 42, uh, just over the page on uh, verse 19, because here we see how his people have behaved towards him. Look at how he describes his people. He uses the word servant, and look at how he describes them. Verse 19, Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me? Blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but have paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. See, God's people have done the equivalent of the school bully. You know how the school bully shuns people they don't like? Well, the people of God have stuck their fingers in their ears and covered over their eyes when it comes to their God. And God gives them over to their desires. They say they don't want their God, they cover over their eyes, and so God gives them over to their autonomy. But look at how it's turned out in verse 22. It is a nightmare. This is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to save. Send them back. See, here are the people at rock bottom. They've gone their own way and now they find themselves broken, looted, plundered and facing this huge aggressor in this empire of Babylon. No one to help them. No one to rescue. But in the darkness of that situation comes chapter 43. Notice how 43 begins. It begins with those two special words. But now. But now. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. See, despite their rejection of God, God has not given up on them. Uh, The word formed there, it comes from um, pottery. Uh, I don't know anything about pottery, but but I know that you put clay on a wheel and you spin the wheel and you form a, a, a... a jar and you put the jar on display. It's that kind of idea. God has done that with his people. He has formed them carefully. He's put them on display. He's proud of them. And that phrase, summoned you by name, it's not a terrifying summons. 
it's the idea of a parent naming a child. I don't know if you've ever had that privilege of naming a child. The amount of thought and books that are read about it, you know, is beyond describing, really. And you come to the conclusion, you come to the name, and, and it means so much. So when my children ask me, why am I called X or Y, or that's not their real names, uh, <laughs> I can say it's because we thought this. We wanted you to hold on to this idea. See, despite the people shunning their God, he will not shun them. Look at what God says about them in verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You may detect there there's echoes of Exodus chapter 3 when God appears to Moses in the burning bush and declares to him, I am the Lord. And it's getting us to think back or getting this small nation to think back to the, the God who met them there. And God is saying, look, I am still committed to you. I am your saviour. And because of that commitment, God will have compassion on his people. Look at what he promises in verse 2. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. See, the water here, the the fire, are describing that coming threat of Babylon. Imagine being stuck in the water so you can't surface. Imagine being stuck in the fire so you are terrified. That's going to be what his people go through. But God says, I will be with you. They will not overwhelm you. They will not burn you. Why is that? Well, we see the answer in verse 5. He says, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. See, God says, I will gather you again. This will not be the end of you. You may go through it, but I will be with you. I don't know if you've um, had the privilege of um, being a parent or looking after children, but you'll know that there's all sorts of ways that children go into fearful situations. And what do you do when they do? Well, you grab them by the hand and you say, Daddy's got you. Don't take them out of the situation necessarily, but you do say, I am with you. It's going to be okay. And God, the one who's perfectly in his rights to throw the book at his people, grabs his people by the hand and says, I'm still your God. I'm still your father. And you will come through this. See, God is a saviour like no other because his mercy extends beyond we can, uh, what we can imagine. God isn't just committed to his people for as long as they obey him and then kind of cuts them off. God isn't just compassionate all the time that his people's hearts are warm towards him and then chooses not to have compassion. See, God in his nature is incomparably merciful, incomparably compassionate. And what is true of Israel here is true of 
for us today. Because later on, as Christ comes and as he goes to his death, he takes himself, on himself, the waters and the fire of God's judgment. So that what is true for Israel here is now true for all of those that are in Christ. Uh, The Apostle Paul, writing 800 years after this, writes these words, There is now no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the book of Hebrews, again written around a similar time, says this, Never will God leave you. Never will I forsake you. See, this, coming back to that question we asked at the beginning, what makes God's salvation so special? This is the first chunk of the answer. Because no other saviour saves like this. See, every other path of salvation relies on my ability to carry it out. So um, whether it be a formal religion, uh, following a particular path uh, to reach enlightenment or uh, following a particular exercise regime and a health program uh, to reach a certain age or whether it would be you know, working on my talents so I'm truly recognized for who I am. Every one of those relies on me to do it. If I don't make it, well, it's on me. But this salvation is completely different. See, this salvation doesn't rely on my ability to carry it out. It relies on God's ability to carry it out. See, even when his people have made him an enemy, even when they've turned their back on him, God says, I am your God. I am your Savior. And of course, that doesn't mean we sort of reject God. It doesn't mean we think of God casually. There are real warnings in Scripture. But it does mean that my confidence in his ability to save first and foremost, comes from him and not me. I wonder, do you see that this morning? I guess there will be all sorts of perceptions of who God is. And I guess one common one is that God holds up this impossible set of demands that I need to keep, otherwise he's going to cut me off. But here we see a God that is far different from that. He says, I am already your God. I am your saviour, and I'll be with you. But the question is, how do we know that's true? It's all very well declaring that, isn't it? How do we know that God really is this compassionate? Well, in the second half of this passage, we see the evidence of God's mercy uh, in uh, verses 8 to 13. Um, I don't know if you're a fan of the courtroom drama, uh, maybe you love uh, a few good men, or perhaps you followed the Vardy versus Rooney case, you know, and got really into that. But if you are, well, you're in for a treat because the second half of this passage is a courtroom drama. Uh, the court assembles in verse 8 and 9 as the whole world comes to spectate on this trial. And the question the court is asking comes in the second half of verse 9. Now, the question is this, what God is able to save? So we're very well offering salvation, and 
speaking about salvation, but what proof have you got? And it may be very well that some of us are here this morning asking that question of ourselves. God speaks about his compassion. He speaks about his commitment. But is it really there? And the court goes silence. And no other God comes forward. But then this God comes forward in verse 10. He says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. See, God comes forward and claims to be the saviour And what evidence has he got? Well, it comes in verse 12. For I have revealed and saved and proclaimed and not some foreign God among you. Now, it takes a bit of getting your head around this, but but what's going on here? God doesn't just speak about salvation. Notice what he says in verse 12. I've revealed and I've saved and I've proclaimed. In other words, God doesn't do his salvation behind closed doors. He does it for everyone to see. He reveals it, he does it, he proclaims it. So take, for example, the Exodus. Uh, The Exodus um, wasn't just done, it was proclaimed. There was a kind of pre-match build-up as Moses went to the burning bush and heard God speak and uh, God told Moses what was going to happen and then Moses told Pharaoh what was going to happen And then the plagues came, and then the people were led out, and then since that, that event was proclaimed for future generations. And other gods just don't do that. He's a completely different league, the God of the Bible. Other gods may promise salvation, but they can't point to a moment in time where they've shown it for all to see. Now, how does this help us? Well, because God has done something similar in Jesus in a far greater way. See, God doesn't just send Jesus out of nowhere. There's a long build-up. It's called the Old Testament. He proclaims it right from the foundations of the earth. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is probably the earliest moment where God promises one who will crush the serpent. And then as Moses dies, he says these words, the Lord your God will raise up another prophet greater than me from among you. And a couple of chapters later in Isaiah, we read that one will come who will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, And by his wounds we are healed. And as Jesus comes, he says these words, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is centuries before the moment. And not only does God preview it, it happens as Jesus goes to the cross faithfully. And as he dies forsaken... He promises to the thief next to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
And three days later, he rises to prove that that salvation is effective. His first words to the disciples who abandoned him were, peace be with you. See, the the salvation God promises is not just wishful thinking. It's not like the other paths to salvation, thinking that we can kind of, you know, maybe get there, maybe not. It is a salvation that has been declared, shown, enacted in real time and space. If you're a scientist amongst you, I guess a way of, amongst us, I guess a way of putting this is to say that it's a testable fact. It's evidenced. It was seen. It can be explored. See, how do I know God truly is compassionate? How do I know he is merciful? Well, I look back to the cross because there I see evidence for it. Now, as we come out of this chapter, what are we to take from it? Well, I I just want to set up two things a a bit more briefly than, um, than the first two points. First of all, Uh, God wants to change our minds and our hearts. See, God wants us to change our minds. He wants us to know that headline in verse 11. Um, If the person next to you dropped off, give them a nudge now, because uh, this is coming back to our headline, verse 11, that apart from me, there is no saviour. See, the salvation that we speak of, the salvation that all of us seek in some form or other, is incomparable to the salvation God offers. It's not just a salvation that enables me to live a couple of decades, so I'm 102 or whatever. It's not a salvation that just leads to a happier life, so I can become a pop star or something. See, God promises a salvation of a different league, a salvation that promises eternal life, a salvation that promises a joy that is unquenchable. He is the incomparable saviour. We're not just selling to people an idea of salvation in this life. But he also wants to engage our hearts. Because look at how the people are feeling. You see uh, in verse 1 that he says, fear not. Or verse 5, do not be afraid. See, these are people who doubt God's salvation. They look at their circumstances and they wonder whether God is there for them. And especially as they will go through the waters. Notice God doesn't say, forget the waters they're going or forget the fire, I'm going to take it from you. No, they're going to go through the waters. They're going to go through the fire. God says in Acts that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. But through those things, they need not fear because the fire of God's judgment has fallen on Jesus because Jesus has taken on the waters of his punishment. We can read those verses and know they are true for you and me. When you pass through the waters, God will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. See, I don't know about you, but when I fear... I'm tempted to sort of follow those sort of paths to salvation the world does. When I think I'm not going to have enough resources, I worry about money. Or when I think I'm not going to uh, have enough energy, I worry about health. Or uh, I obsess over uh, 
all sorts of things because I'm fearful. But actually, once I focus on God and what he is like, those fears dissipate as I'm reminded that he is the only saviour. He is a saviour like no other because of, as we see, in the extent of his compassion and the evidence of his compassion. I guess this is something we need to remind ourselves of. I don't know about you, but I do. It'd be worth reading those verses, perhaps over lunch, before dinner, taking out verse 2 and verse 11, and, and, and reading that to yourself and thinking, do I believe this? Where do I doubt this? And it'd be worth helping others, won't it, as a church family, because there will be lots of us going through the waters, going through the fires. And as they do, we need to be alongside them saying, remember your God. Remember there is a saviour like no other with you. As we close, I'll leave you with these words from the song, How Firm a Foundation. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. We praise you, our Father in heaven, for the extent of your mercy and for the evidence of your mercy. And we pray, our Father, that you would equip us by our minds, by our hearts, to see that you are incomparable in your salvation, that apart from you, there is no saviour. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.